On this episode, I'm in the room with author Cliff Graham talking about his book series, The Lion of War, and the upcoming movie based on the same books. Welcome to In the Room, episode number 19. I'm Ryan Hughley, and I'm the founding and lead pastor of Redemption Bible Church just outside Chicago. You can find me online at ryanhughley.com and also on Twitter and Instagram at, at Ryan Hughley. That's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. I have a simple goal to bring you in the room for what I hope are interesting and helpful conversations with a diverse group of guests, including pastors, professors, authors, and artists. Today, I'm in the room with Cliff Graham. He's the author of the Lion of War book series based on the life of King David and his mighty men. In our conversation, we discuss the violent nature of some scripture, the upcoming movie based on his books, and the organization that he works with to free children from sex slavery. I'm excited about how God's using these books and this man, so come on in the room for my conversation with Cliff Graham. Cliff, thanks so much for uh, coming on in the room. Really appreciate it. Happy to have you. Uh, You're sitting in Hawaii right now, correct? Yes. And I believe you're sitting in the Midwest where there's a blizzard. Yeah, it's awesome. So (laughs) I feel a lot of affection for you right now. Let me tell you. Uh, Hey man, for people that don't know you, uh, it's been really uh, exciting for me to get to know a little bit more about you and your ministry and your work uh, in the last couple months. But for people that aren't familiar with you, let's just start with your background if we could. So I believe you and I uh, spent a good portion of time in the same place. Where are you from originally? You know, I, I, my hometown, I was born in Texas and spent my first few years there, but then Rapid City, South Dakota is what I would call my hometown. And I believe you represent from Rapid City as well. Yeah. Yeah. My dad was in the air force. And, uh, so we were stationed there actually two different times. And so that's where I went to high school and you went to Stevens, which was like literally less than a mile from my house, which is pretty weird. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember you went to Rapid City Christian, right? I did. Yes. So you were in Rapid City. So what happened after high school for you? Where did you go? So I I was there. I went to college at Black Hill State University up the road in Spearfish, South Dakota. Yep. Um, Major metropolis there in Western South Dakota. And uh, from that point, (laughs) from that point, got married and moved back to Texas for a while. I was uh, working as a, a pastor at a church, a youth pastor, sort of young adult pastor for a while in San Antonio. And then, uh, that was when, while I was doing that, I, I just wrapped up some time on active duty in the military. And then I, that's where the whole day of war thing started was when I was working at that church. Okay. So what branch of the military were you in? I was in the army. I started out in the Marine Corps and, uh, I, I had a, an injury when I was in training that made them kick me out. And so I, I, you know, I never hear the end of it from my Marine Corps bodies, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, once that happened, I switched over to the army and it was good. It was a good relationship. Lasted about 15 years. Um, she is definitely a very flighty mistress of the army and, yeah. uh, <laughs> you have to, you have to commit. And then, uh, and I just decided after a while that it was just too much. And so, um, you know, family was important and whatnot, but it was a great experience. Were you deployed? Uh, you know, I, I was, I was activated several times. I spent a lot of time in and around, um, the, the, the deployment process. They never actually sent me over to the, the Middle East for a deployment. I just spent every time they would activate us or assign me somewhere, it was always stateside. Okay. So, um, the, and the way that the, the way that the two conflicts timed out Iraq and Afghanistan, um, as one was, you know, ebbing, I would be, I would be active. And then as one was heating up, they would deactivate me. So okay. it was never, yeah, I was never able to go over there, but I did spend, like I said, a long time, um, in and around the environment and, 
did my own, you know, I, I was a military police officer for a while. So we spent a lot of our time on post and uh, kind of acted like a cop. So the, the irony of it was I joke with my buddies about, you know, they would get deployed and they'd go over there to these forward operating bases and, um, or even just the main hubs and, and they would, they would sit there bored most of the time. And I would, I would tell these stories of how crazy it was breaking up bar fights and whatnot. And they're sitting <laughs> <Yeah>. there getting, <laughs> they're sitting there getting jealous of me. I'm like, wait, you guys are the ones that are overseas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So did you grow up, were your parents believers? You grew up in a Christian home? Absolutely. My dad was a Southern Baptist pastor. Um, that was the house that I grew up in. Okay. And then he became an E-Free Church pastor after, um, after uh, about the age of 10 and, uh, yeah, when I was 10 o'clock or 10, 10 years old, we moved to rapid city and, um, he became an e-free church pastor. And so my mother is, I mean, multi-generational pastor's kid, pastor's wife. So it's, it's thick in our blood. Yeah. The, the pastor. So did you come to mm-hmm. faith? Do you even remember a time when you were not a follower of Christ or did it, did your faith come later in your life or when that happened for you? You know, it was, um, I'm, I'm very much the guy that can't put my finger on a point that I came to faith. I, I just have simply been blessed with the ability to breathe that air my entire life. Um, you know, I did the kind of the teen angst thing when I was in high school yeah. and, uh, questioned God and all of it, but, but never anything serious. I, I just have always been able to, to point to my life filled with being taught the things of the word and taught the things of Christ. And it's just a blessing for it. All right. Well, I'm really curious to hear how you went from youth pastor, 15 years in the army to, uh, an author of a great series of historical biblical fiction and now a movie that's coming out of that. So let's start with, uh, the line of war series. Tell, tell, tell me, tell people that aren't familiar with the series. What was the inspiration behind the series? What's it about? How did that kind of come to be? You bet. Well, first of all, Ryan, it, it is seven Oh six in the morning out here where I am. So if I sound a little slurred speech, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's no, it's totally it's still fine. very early. So forgive me there. I'm, you know, but no, I, I tell you what I, um, I was working as a, you know, and I was a soldier and then I became a chaplain. So I started out in the military police and then became a chaplain in the army. And I, I was always searching for ways to teach the Bible in a way that guys could relate to. Um, the, just some, I think something about the way the Bible is, has always been taught to the, the general culture. I think a lot of men think it's just Jesus sitting around petting lambs all day and yeah. there's nothing in there that's very gritty and intense for him. And so that combined with, uh, you know, youth pastoring in an inner city church. And I would, I would, you know, teach, I'd be, you know, the, the white guy up front and there's a very mixed race uh, yeah. crowd sitting in front of me. And I'm trying to find ways to, you know, I, I think to myself, these kids and I have very little in common, but, but these Bible stories are exciting and gripping. And around that time, the movie 300 came out. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, if we could only do that with the stories of the Bible, especially like David and his mighty men, um, there in second Samuel 23, you know, the deeds of these warriors that did great stuff. Yeah. I thought if we could just kind of capture that, then there would be people who were, uh, the, the culture would really engage with it and find a new, fresh take on the Bible to where it, it becomes less about just kind of, you know, looking at the Bible from the outside, looking in and instead experiencing it and touching it and tasting it and feeling it. And, um, you know, the blood, sweat and tears of the account. And so that's, that drove me after some buddies and I sat around barbecue one evening and talked about how, how neat that would be. Uh, we were all involved in ministry and I, j- I just stayed after it and, uh, researched and studied and looked for ways to sort of tell that story. 
Um, no formal training in writing and never took a writing class. Yeah. How did you make that? Like you just decide who, who just wakes up and they're like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write a book or a series of books. Like how, how did you, what was that process like for you becoming an author with no background in that whatsoever? Long, painful and horrible. Yeah. (laughs) It was, uh, it was very difficult. Um, so, but not because I, I think I lacked confidence in the ability to do it. It was because of the hopelessness of a new writer, you know, you, you Google and you search the internet for ways to get published and, and hopeless is the word I'm sure you can imagine yeah. coming out with. I mean, there, there's just, it's just so hard to do it in this day and age. And I've already had, I've already had one proposal denied, so I completely feel the pain. <laughs> trust right. me. So rejection is your constant companion. That's right. That's writer, right. Um, I say what I did though, is instead of just kind of sit around waiting for it to happen, I, I took the matter and said, you know, felt like the Lord was, um, just really pressing me to do it. And, and I, you know, you could kind of collect a handful of pennies for the number of times a person goes, Oh, God told me to do this. And, yeah. you know, or, or I'm sure a lot of <laughs> knowing the publishers, like I do now, they get hit all the time with a writer coming in the door saying, well, the Lord told me right, to right. write this and you need to publish it. And yeah. the he, did, he did says, not, he did not me. tell me to publish it. So yeah. you're on your own <laughs> self publish, my friend. Yeah. He told me, he told me not the same thing. Yes. Um, so, so I think we just, I did. So I just swallowed my pride and, and self-published it. And I thought to myself, um, I had to keep, keep the core of what the project was about in mind. And, and I would go on very long late night runs and I called it my 10 to midnight time. It was after my kids were in bed, my wife was in bed. And, and I was at that point, I was in the military. I was working as a youth pastor. I was in seminary. Um, I was doing really those three things heavily and the only free time I had to pursue the dream was past 10 o'clock at night. And so sometimes, you know, in the sweltering heat of South Texas, I would go for these long runs because in Texas, the only time you can run is at night. Right, right. <laughs> so it would be go for these long runs and I would listen to, to various sermons and, you know, Tony Evans and Matt Chandler, and these guys that I just really felt I loved the way they talked about the word and it felt alive and it felt passionate and and I used that to, to sort of feed my um, my view on how to fictionally portray these characters, and then I would be up until yeah midnight, one a.m. And uh, that was that was the season of madness uh, for yeah, me. Yeah. Try and fight through that. You know, I think that's a really great lesson, though, for <clears throat> people who are you know aspire to write or have any dream that they're following. It's 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 uh, it's a dangerous way to pursue a dream to basically quit everything else that's going on in your life. Um, especially when right. you have the responsibilities of family to take care of as well. So I think there's something really honorable and admirable about, you know, if God's really put this on you, then, you know, then, then do it when you can, whatever that means and let that burden fall on you rather than your family. I, I just, I feel like, you know, guys that are willing to kind of make their families sacrifice in the name of following their dream, I feel like there's a lot more of that than there are guys that are willing to do what it takes, like, you know, the way that you did, which is great. Well, and you have to, that's so true, but and you have to come to a point, I think in your own soul where you, you put it on the altar and you say, Lord, this is, this is yours. And, and if, if it is your desire to consume it with fire, do so. And yeah. if it's your desire to bless it and glorify it and raise it up, I mean, that's, Please do so. I, I think for me, the hardest part was after all the hours, after all the tears, after, like I said, the writing is so inherently lonely that, that yeah. when you come out of it, um, it's the hardest thing in the world to release that. And, and I think I had to come to a point where I told the Lord, you just need to take this from me, please, so that I can get on with my life. If it's not your will for this to do anything, 
I really have to know. I don't yeah. want to be that guy on American Idol that's singing and can't carry a tune. And <laughs> yeah. you know, no one's telling me, you know, yeah. I need to know. And I'm, and I'm okay with that, but, yeah. but he wouldn't release it from me. So. so tell me about the research process. Cause it's a pretty tricky thing. Like what we have, especially, you know, with the mighty men, we have these like skeletons of stories, but there's mm -hmm. not a ton of flesh on them as far as details. So you have to put a lot of detail into these stories. So what was your research process like to come to be able to do that? Um, I started, you know, most people, I think kind of start with the British accent in their head and they crack open the Bible and they just, yeah. <laughs> they start to, to review the stories and sort of create this, um, can we just and, once and, and all this. decide that there are no British people in the Bible? There are none. Right. There never was one. There not, never not will one be time. One. <laughs> all right. Sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, you're good. I, and so that was one of the jokes I tell with the filmmakers is like, if someone puts a British accent on somebody, I'm getting a bat out. You know, oh, yeah, like, big time. it was, <laughs> no, it was funny. You know, I, I, I think I just looked at it and thought, okay, I know what people say the Bible says. Um, I know what, you know, there's commentaries and you, know, you read these commentaries and they're great, but I sort of just started with a stripped down approach of what does it actually say in regards to the life of David? No, just nothing but the text we have in front of us and studying that, looking at that, then diving into the original languages and the, you know, all the stuff that you would do, but nothing beyond just what it says. Yeah. And I realized that that's so important because it's not that those commentaries have no value. They have incredible life-changing value. They're just not themselves, the word of God. You have Good. to start with the word of God. Yeah. And, and once I, once I sort of got to know the text, those chapters that describe David's life and his warriors, I said, okay, now we can build from the foundation that I feel comfortable with because I now know what the word actually says. And, and so from that, that process, I studied it and I realized, man, there's some angles on David that I don't believe have ever really been explored before. One of those is that pot potentially the combat trauma and how it affected him psychologically. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, as a soldier, I, I looked around my platoon around this time I was, uh, you know, I was assigned to a unit and I, I looked around and I thought to myself, you know, these guys are these are the mighty men. It's, it's this kind of temperament. I, I have no doubt that fighting men through history are essentially the same. Now there's cultural differences. There's things that, you know, we would look back 2000, 3000 years ago and think, okay, that's a little raw, but essentially guys are the same. They, they're it's from creation. And I think, man, the, the, the laughing, the joking, the teasing, the, all the stuff that guys do in a room full of guys when frankly, when there's not women present, yeah, <laughs> this yeah. is what, this is what guys act like. And this is, I know what soldiers act like. So I wanted to, those characterizations are all drawn from my buddies and yeah. that were in the unit. And then, uh, you know, I, I started there and really kind of dove into the psychology of the soldier, the warrior, um, you know, looking at David from the, the, the lens of here was a, a, a combat leader who under, underwent a lot of stress. And, uh, how do we, how, how might that have affected him later in life when sin started creeping in and, and all that stuff? So. Yeah. So then you, but you also studied a lot about warfare and weaponry and all mm -hmm. that stuff, didn't you? Oh yeah. And then I went over to Israel and walked to the battlefields and, and studied and with, with the, with the officer hat on looking around thinking, okay, there's a high point, there's a low point. Um, you know, with, with the centuries of erosion and stuff that, that have occurred, you still have basically the same layout of the land. And so it's so important to walk over there and, and realize that, man, this, this high point right here was, was likely a place where a scout would have been deployed to look for something or this low point here, or where's the water at, where's the escape routes, all these things that a soldier thinks like, and, and the, the other irony is that, you know, the modern Israel wars are fought on a 
lot of the same exact terrain features. It's, yeah. it's always been the case that the Rephaim Valley was strategic. And so as I write about these guys fighting over that valley when the Philistines would invade, it's ironic to think that, you know, now there's a, there's a train station outside of Jerusalem where one of these great battles took place, but that was a very strategic spot for the modern Israel wars. And right. so just the fact that the, the land itself is a character, I hope it becomes a character in the series because Definitely. the men love it. Yeah. The men love it so much. And then they're fighting over it all the time. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> tell me a little bit about how did you, so when did you self publish? Like what year did the book come out when you self published? Um, I, I believe it's 2008, 2009, somewhere in there. So um, then you ended and, up getting and, picked up though by Zondervan, right? And you did ended up, end up getting, uh, the, at least the first two published through them. Is that right? Yeah. So, so what happened was I self published it and then through a very, um, long series of, of, of incidents, uh, good ones, I yeah. it was picked up by the filmmakers and, and actually the, the film deal came first which is wildly unlikely. Yeah. Um, but, but it's, uh, and I would encourage people to not expect that to happen. That was a very yeah. rare deal, but, but it was, uh, they, they picked it up and, and that's what gave me the extra, um, I guess, mojo to take it to yeah. the publishers and say, Hey, you know, these filmmakers are interested. They love the story. Who's going to listen to it. So my agency shopped it around and, and yeah, so it, it was picked up by Zondervan. There's a few other ones that bid as well, but we felt like they were a good fit at the time for, um, for what we were trying to do. Uh, and yeah, and so we we put it out there. Traditionally published the first two, and then uh, we're in pro in the process on the remaining three because of the film. We we're playing our our cards very slowly and methodically to yeah. make sure that that we're making the right publishing choices each step of the way. Um, but uh, but yeah, that's how that's really how it happened. Um, the agency liked it at that point, and and we went from there. Well, so. I'm almost through the first book, and uh, they certainly reflect the violent nature of the biblical stories. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and obviously because you were able to put so much more flesh on them, they reflect the biblical nature in much greater detail. So what would you say to critics? Cause everybody's got critics, uh, cause we, what would the world be without critics? But what would you yep. say to critics who would accuse you maybe in the book of really glorifying the violence in these books? I get that frequently. And, and honestly, my first reaction just personally is, is sadness because I, I think it's, Part of why warriors will always go misunderstood is because when they when they talk about their love of battle or their craving of battle, it's not it's not inherently a love of killing human beings. It's the camaraderie and, and sense of valor that that they experience with each other and in, inside themselves. And so, I really at that level, I you know I almost take offense. Not that I don't really offend at anything, but I take yeah. offense in the idea that we can't portray the realities of warfare and battle and combat and violence without glorifying it. I, I absolutely think we can. In fact, I don't know of a more anti-war book I could have possibly written. Um, I, I think it's, it's the, the true warrior, the true warrior hero, I would say is a, uh, is a hater of violence and battle. Um, but, but they also know that someone has to do it yeah. and to, to rest, it's always been the duty, I guess, Ryan of men, to restrain barbarism. Um, that's always been our duty. You know, if we want our wives to live in peace, our children live in peace, there has to be a rough man willing to do violence on their behalf. And mm -hmm. it has nothing to do with the, you know, retribution and vengeance and, you know, all the things that I would argue Christ talked about when you're talking eye for an eye and all that. Yeah. It, it would just simply be the idea that you're not, you know, if you're walking with your wife down the street and someone attacks her and tries to rape her and you just step back and say, well, I'm a pacifist. I'm not going to do anything about this. Um, you're a coward. You're yeah. not noble. Right. <laughs> so I think that's the duty of these men 
to, to step into that place and, and be willing to take the arrows and suffer on behalf of others. And so I, I just, I, I have to tell the truth in that area. Yeah. And, and I think people need to know that ancient warfare was bloody, horrible, and nasty. And the more that we understand that's what it was, I think we can appreciate and gain insight into these characters and how they behaved. I think it's interesting the way that you talked about <clears throat> soldiers and warriors being misunderstood, especially right mm-hmm. now with, you know, American snipers, one of the biggest movies of the year. And, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's gotten a ton of criticism and I mm-hmm. wonder just your opinions about that, about, about the movie, about the story, about, uh, Kyle's situation. And, and, and cause a lot of people did say you know, it's a glor- glorifying violence, all these types of things. Mm-hmm. And so do you really think that that's just a misunderstanding of what's being conveyed? Yeah. And, and I, and my, my guy, my buddies that are still in are all frustrated as well because with I the think criticism. They- yeah, and, and the not so much that I mean we hey politically people can agree to disagree or whatnot about the nature of that specific war and, sure. and all these things that's that's all fair game, but I think once again what's going misunderstood here is that there there's two extreme reactions to that movie that I think are indicative of how people view warfare in general. One is the the pro flag waving patriotic rah rah side. Hey, I again I was a soldier, spent 15 years in, I get it. Yeah, there's there's that that side of it. Then there's those that say, oh my gosh you know, these barbarians and, you know, what are these, these simplistic jingoistic, you know, patriotic crowd. I mean, you have, you have these sort of the extreme left and extreme right approach to this. And I think it's sad because I really believe that both of them are ultimately missing the point. It seemed like Eastwood's approach to that film was the nature of combat on relationships and on a human soul. And, and if you can watch the scenes, you know, I want to not no spoilers, but where he's, you know, lining up the crosshairs on a little boy yeah. who's carrying an RPG. The, the tension of that scene is not you're rooting for him to pull the trigger. The tension of that scene is, is you're rooting for the kid to put down the RPG. Yeah. And, and I, I think that, and that those little, those little quiet moments captured the warrior soul so well in that movie. I love the battles. It was all really well staged, but it's those intimate moments yeah. where, where he's glaring at it and just, you can see the strain in his eyes about the right choice to make and the effect that would have on him. Yeah. That to me was the, what I liked about and it. And that was my, so. particularly in that scene, I remember my wife and I saw the trailer to that and that scene is in the trailer. And my, my mm-hmm. response walking away from it was just the weight of, I can't imagine having to make mm-hmm. that kind of decision. And I, I think that humility says we should think about that a little bit more prior to criticism because you can't imagine most, most of the critics Mm -hmm. I'm unaware of one critic that has Mm -hmm. ever been in that position and to make judgments about a position that you've never been in, I find to be the epitome of arrogance. Um, Uh, so I would agree with Mm -hmm. you on that. Hey, it's me, Ryan, again. Sorry to interrupt, but I need your help. If we're going to make it as easy as possible for people to find these podcasts, we have to increase our visibility on iTunes. So do me a favor. If you're enjoying this episode, will you take 60 seconds, log on to iTunes, and leave me a short review? It's that simple. Every review makes a huge impact. Keep spreading the word, and thanks for your support. Now back to the conversation. So I want to talk about the movie. So it is amazingly uncommon that a movie deal would get signed from a self-published book prior to a publishing company picking it up. And again, I think that's a great to say that that's not a good model for people to think is going to happen again. (laughs) But, but tell me a little bit about how, how in the world did this movie come into play and the vision that you guys are working toward? I'm just like so excited about this. So just tell me more about that. Yeah, so I was approached by um, a filmmaker named David Cunningham. He made a movie that, that I that I loved uh, back in 2000, 2001, 
it was called to end all wars and it had Kiefer Sutherland in it. And it was about a, a world war II prisoner of war camp. And, uh, you know, people can get it on Netflix now, I think, but, but it all was you had to say was grip. Kiefer Sutherland. And I was in, <laughs> and you were, you were all Jack Bauer, That's all, and Jack camp. Bauer and there anything. I don't care. He was good as a vampire. So he's Absolutely. phenomenal. Whatever he's in, you're That's all right. in on it. Yeah. No, he, you know, I, I think so. So David made that film, um, on a shoestring back in the day and it was very, very well acclaimed and, you know, festival award winner kind of film. And so that put him on the map. And then he made a, um, a, a movie, ABC miniseries called the path to nine 11, which was very, very controversial. And, um, because I, you know, the, the right and the left side of the spectrum didn't like how it portrayed mm. all of the failures leading up to nine 11. And so anyway, so it was, you know, he, he had a career in it. He was, he was working through these films. And so what I did was I, um, he reached out. He had been looking for a way to tell the story of David in a in an accessible manner. So if you think about all the other King David movies or just Bible movies in general, you have the British accents, you have a very stately approach, and it's always, you know, their life from beginning to end in two hours. And so the the tension of the moment is, is never really there. You're you're more it's more about st- stepping back and watching a passion play, if you will. Yeah. Um and, and what David, what David loved about my book, he had it referred to him from, from a mutual friend. He just loved that. I mean, the whole novel takes place over 10 days. It's not this life of David. It's just, you're, you're on the battlefield saving private Ryan style for 10 yeah. days. And, um, and he just loved that approach as a filmmaker, the visuals and all these things going on. And I think he just, it really connected with him. So he called his friend um, a guy he'd wanted to, to, they wanted to work on a movie together for a long time, but his name was Grant Curtis and Grant produced the Spider-Man trilogy for, for Sony. And so he had a real name in Hollywood as a, as an A-list producer. He also produced Oz the Great and Powerful. And, you know, he's just a great guy. They, they read my, my book and both just loved it and reached out and said, Hey, can we, can we option this for a film? Uh, we think we've got a potential franchise here, you know, almost like, 300 meets the passion of the Christ with sequel potential. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, That's a good place to be it's a, yeah, as yeah, a self-published so think, author, especially. Yeah. Oh, <clears throat> you know, well, my first reaction was, okay, is this a Nigerian prince trying to tell me that I've inherited, you know, $40 billion and yeah. he wants to wire. It to my <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, they were serious. They, they really loved the material. And, and I, I can step back and very categorically say that was the hand of God. Um, yeah. I had nothing to do with that. Um, in, in the wake of that, we've worked very hard and been diligent, but that was absolutely the, the hand of God opening up doors. And, and it just seemed very obvious that for such a time as this, I think this type of storytelling is, is ready. I think the, the public is ready to get it. Yeah. So then, so the, so the, you're working on that right now. Tell, tell me about mm-hmm. like, so where are you guys at in the process now? Uh, what's the movie going to be like? What's kind of the, the story arc of it going to be? What are you going to be looking at for that? Okay. So we are just wrapping up about five years of development. So a movie of that size and scale, it takes that long. Cause what's the minimum. budget that you're working on? Uh, secret. It's <laughs> but, a secret. But it's okay. A, but it's a big budget but film, but it's a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot. And, and, um, and it, it'll be revealed over time. But I think okay. at this point, what's happening is, is that there, uh, there's several studios involved and, and the nature of this project is that you, you have to kind of messaging wise, roll it out at the right time for the right crowd. That's, that's their thinking. And so if you have a secular sort of Hollywood studio, they're ultimately interested in the bottom line. Um, you sure. know, what's it going to make, what's the profit margin. So they've, they've got that motive and, and yet they're, they also want to make sure that it appeals to the faith crowd because you don't want a repeat of Noah where right. that movie made some money and was, was pretty successful. 
but not anywhere near what it could have been. Um, yeah. Everyone's trying to find that passion of the Christ success model. And, and so what we're doing on our side early on is showing the studios, look, we speak the faith community language. This is who we are. This is, you know, we're going to keep it orthodox to the word and, and they're going to, they're going to trust that. And as you know, I think you and I talked on the phone about this. A lot of Christians just, I think they measure the intent of the filmmaker be more than the quality of the film. Yeah. And if we can sort of bridge those two where we say, Hey, we can bring a quality film at the Hollywood level with the intent of people who want to honor the word, that's the sweet spot. Yeah. You know? And so visually so is the vision, is it, will it look more like the 300 or will it look more like, you know, like a regular, cause three, I mean, I don't know what that, I'm, I'm not a filmmaker, so I'm not sure, sure what that type of film is, but it looked, you know, comic booky, very green screen. I mean, I thought that movie was amazing. So is it going to look <laughs> sure. visually more like that? Cause you sent me like one of the, one of the, uh, the comic books or the, um, that I looked at as well. And it looked very much like that. So is that the vision for like, is that what you think it's going to look like visually, or is it going to be more sort of Lord of the Rings, grand epic in mm-hmm. scope? Um, I would say probably closer to Lord of the Rings and, and gladiator in its, gotcha. in its visual look, it'll be filmed on location and, you know, things like that, but it will, it will certainly be, be influenced by something like 300 where you've got, I, I guess the best way to describe it is, is you, you have the grit and the intensity of a gladiator or saving private Ryan, something like that, yeah. that, that is flavored with the supernatural that, that the, the biblical account shows, you know, you've got the witch of Endor with Saul and all that in there, that it's going to have a level of Lord of the Rings ish fantasy to it as well. Um, it's a fascinating vision. The comic book that, that you're talking about, you know, there's going to be a graphic novel series released in tandem with it. That will be a very heightened visual um, yeah. look. It'll okay. be yeah, comic book looking, but the film itself, I would say you're, you're closer to Lord of the Rings than anything. So the first film is going to follow just a 10 day period in the life of David. The, fir- the actually the first film will include some more of his backstory. So okay. about the first half of the movie, kind of more of his backstory. And then, yeah, then it will kind of start to follow the plot of my book. Okay. Um, a little more closer, but you've got one of the, and one of the things that came up was you've got to find a way to tell for, for an audience member who doesn't know the life of David very well. They, right. they know David and Goliath or David and Bathsheba. And that's it. those two things in a vacuum, right. you know? Yep. <laughs> and so we're trying to, to put context to David's life. And so I, I've loved how the screenwriter, John Fusco, um, really, really did a great job. He, he honored me a lot by, by the way he interacted with me and, He's a, he's a great guy. He wrote Hidalgo and Forbidden Kingdom and young, the Young Guns movies back in the day, those Phenomenal. Western. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Kiefer, again, That's Kiefer. right. So it was, uh, <laughs> so no, he's a great guy, and, but just really wanted to, to, to capture um, my voice from the books, but then also um, expand on it in a way that it would, it would you know, kind of have that, that franchise feel to it. Yeah. And so, so yeah, so no, he, he, he honored me greatly in that process, and he, I think the script that he cranked out after many passes, everyone that what's neat, Ryan, is that everyone working on this really cares about it. And so, you know, stray lines of dialogue and descriptions. I mean, it was like, it was friendly fighting, you know, because yeah. we really all wanted to make it excellent. And, yeah. and that's the process. You got to yeah. really be brutal to it. So, well, I want to ask you about that because I mean, you have to know there's a long list of, let's just say less than excellent Christian movies <laughs> and Bible based sure. movies. And so mm-hmm. how do you, how do you foresee this? uh, not falling victim to that same fate. So like, basically how, how, how can we walk away certain this movie doesn't suck? Right. <laughs> we have a, uh, there's a, a filmmaker buddy of mine named Jonathan Frazier. He, he, he passes out coffee cups with the hashtag avoid suck on them. And so yeah, we yeah, joke yeah. about that, but you know, I think it's, 
that, that back, backing up on that, there's a lot of people that mean really well and, and they're, they have a heart for the Lord and they're trying very hard, but whether it's resource limitations or talent limitations, they're just not able to pull off, um, something that is truly high caliber from an artistic standpoint. And, and so what we've, what we kind of have agreed to do as a team is to not compare ourselves to others. That was kind of our prayer early on was, Hey, we don't want to just run out of it and say, um, this is, this is going to be the anti such and such at the same time. It's, it should be fair game in the arts to point out to people and to, to say, Hey, that movie is not good. It's yeah. uh, in fact, it stinks because we have no problem doing that. You know, if you're going to take, put your family in the car and drive across a bridge and that bridge collapses and you all get hurt or you lose a kid, you know, you, it's fair game to criticize that engineer and say how sure. competent and qualified were you to do that? Well, I think in the arts, that's, that's extreme, but you should look at, you know, as, as a Christian in the arts, you should be held to a high standard. You should try and get better. You should recognize, Hey, this movie's not good. And, and it should be okay to talk about it because it's a, it's a, it's a product like anything else is that's supposed to be out there and representing the kingdom. And so I, I think we just have a really unified sense of, we want this to just be awesome. We're going to take the time. Like I said, I just described that we're, we're out of five years of development where it's just really everything from wardrobe design to costume design to pre-visualization and the visual effects and all that's got to be just right. Because I think everyone in this thing is just all in. We, we want it yeah. to be a real game changer for the culture um, yeah. and what they perceive a Bible movie to be. Well, I've, I asked you this before, but I just need your ongoing assurance. I just need to be certain that Kirk Cameron's not going to play King David. <laughs> that's nothing against oh, yeah. Kirk Cameron. He <laughs> was a phenomenal Mike Seaver. He is not King David. Yeah. It, it's the, the, be the best about it is that they're, watching the casting process unfold, which is what's happening right now. Um, the, I love the adherence to the principle that we're going to cast the best actor for this role, regardless of whether they're a Christian or not. Good. And I think that's a mindset that, that I, that I'm super encouraged about that. They really, they're saying, okay, well, regardless of what this person's faith background is, we are um, going to cast him because he makes an awesome King Saul, you know, or he yeah. makes an awesome Jonathan or someone like that. So no, I, I think we just want to, we want to honor other folks and, uh, but also at the same time say, look, you're not a fit for this. Um, yeah. You know, you, you may, I think Christians tend to think, Oh, let's just pluck a random Christian actor out and, and put them in this movie. Right. And it just doesn't work that way. That's not a fit. It's yeah. irresponsible. So, yeah. You know. Well, I'm, I'm trying to envision a universe in which you can make a movie that's anything like your book and even remotely <laughs> faithful to the biblical story that doesn't have an R rating just because mm -hmm. of the violence and the gritty nature of the story. So do you guys know mm -hmm. yet what it'll rate at? And, uh, you know, if it's an R rating, Passion of the Christ got tons of pushback because of that. So if it's an R mm -hmm. rating, how would you defend that? Why do you think that's necessary? Just tell me a little bit about where your guys' head's at in that whole thing. You know, it's, it's typical of, um, kind of the funny, the funny church culture that we've all grown up in and know and love, um, that, that, that the rating assigned by a bunch of agnostics in Hollywood is what Christians have always viewed as the, the measuring stick for whether a movie, you know, cuts the cloth, so to speak. Sure. Um, the ratings are determined by a group of, of people in Hollywood who are not Christians and they, they have a checklist and the number of times, you know, the F word shows up, check, check, check. Okay. R rating. Oh, you did, you know, you, you used it three times and not four. Okay. PG 13. I mean, it's just a very arbitrary process is my point. So okay. I think one of the things that we're trying to do 
is, is say, look, we're going to tell the story truthfully, understanding that there's, there's a lot of money on the table. Um, there's a lot of people putting in a lot of funding and, and they, they want to mitigate their risk. And so an R rating is something that is, uh, you know, not, not the first preference, I think from the, from a money standpoint, because those are typically, you know, PG 13s typically do much better than ours at the okay. same time. I think people are unafraid of if it comes down to it, the, you know, hitting that sort of R point or, you know, doing the director's cut or something like that, where we say, yeah. look, we have to tell this in a way that, that shows and tells the truth and has, and frankly has credibility. Um, yeah. you know, and it's little things too. It's such an interesting process where maybe you've got a beheading, but, but did you show that beheading from this angle? Well, okay. You know, then, then you're fine. But if you show it from this angle, then automatic R. And so I think the, what the director is doing right now is really combing through the script and finding all of those ways that we can convey the intensity. Like you think about the, the brutality of the Lord of the Rings battles, and that was a PG 13 movie. Yeah. Um, and you know, so I think that's kind of the sweet spot. But again, I, I feel like everyone's prepared to, to go to the mat over what the best version of this film is. So whatever that rating is, is what it is. Well, I'm excited about it. It's sound, I mean, the books are great. So if it's anything like the books, I think it'll be awesome, but I want to shift gears because you're, you're involved with a really amazing organization that I didn't know about listeners might, but I want to talk about it's the um, operation underground railroad. Uh, Is that right? Mm -hmm. I say that right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Operation underground railroad. I think this is, um, I mean, just an unbelievable organization. And so can you just tell me a little bit about what you guys do and your involvement with it? Mm-hmm. So about a year and a half ago, a, a government agent named Tim Ballard uh, was, he worked in the child sex crimes division of the federal government, which is, I, I can frankly not imagine a more horrible job to have. Definitely <laughs> but, not. But he was, uh, I mean, so he, he worked in, in busting up child pornography rings and um, human trafficking, you know, child sex trafficking specifically. He worked in that. And then what he did was, is he, he saw with the bureaucracy and the red tape, um, of, of that world, there were so many kids that were not getting rescued, not because people didn't want to, but because there was again, so much red tape, especially when you're dealing with foreign governments. And so he, he said, look, I'm going to walk away from it. I'll leave it behind. And, and he felt compelled to start this organization where he said that the hybrid of, it's got the tactical competence of an agency, a government, you know, a federal government agency, law enforcement, but it has the, the freedom of an independent organization. And so what they do is, is he, he took his Rolodex with him and essentially all of the under, a lot of the undercover agents, a lot of the government contacts and ambassadors, that kind of thing that he befriended in Latin America specifically. He, he reached out to him personally and said, Hey, if I put together a team of people um, to come down and sort of pose as American sex tourists, um, would you, would you work with us on setting up the law enforcement bust on your side? So essentially, you know, you will get all the credit for it. You'll get all the glory for it. We will come in and out of it and sneak in and out, you know, like ninjas in the night. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's why they call it the underground railroad because the work that the group does is, is largely going to be unknown when it all comes down to it. Um, so, so he just, he had the idea and, and just got favor and really just, like I said, the Rolodex opened up. And so about a year ago, they started doing operations. And uh, in that process, we were, we were both looking at um, advertising on the same client. And that's how I got to know him. Okay. And, um, and so, so in that process, we, Tim and I became really good friends. And, and he loved what I was doing, loved the theme of, of what I was doing. And, and what I was looking for were those ways that that more than just writing about heroes doing great deeds. I said, I, I just want to try and show 
as much as possible. Um, this, this is what the modern day mighty men does. You know, the, the, the ancient mighty men would, um, and then for those who don't know, that's what the David's warriors were called was the yeah. mighty men. That's the Giborim. And so they, uh, what those guys did was they restrained barbarism. They, they held the line, they defended the rock. They did those things that prevented a village from being burned to the ground. And so I, I think in, in this day and age, there's, there's certainly a spiritual component to that. We're just in our homes as husbands and fathers. We, we need to be proactive about that, but also physically there are widows and orphans to be defended out there. And, and to just, rather than just talk about doing this, finding ways to engage and, and thinking, how do we break up child sex trafficking, knowing that there's two to 3 million children caught in that. And we'll, we will not in our lifetime actually stop it, but we can deter it and do what we can. And so I just got, I just felt really called. I, I got, I was out of the military and I, and I had a void in my heart about, I just missed the camaraderie and, and all that with, um, you know, going on missions and, and being a part of something big and exciting. And, uh, and, and this just fit that, that need for me. And so I came in the door, like I said, I'd been a, a cop in the army and I had a background in, in some of this. And so it was, I could kind of fit on the jump team pretty well. And so we got to know each other. So I've been on several missions now and, and it's just been incredibly rewarding. I've done everything from undercover work. Um, you know, in Colombia to set up busts and haggling with traffickers to, to, you know, posing as a big drunk American sex tourist at a party to just all of it. And, and what happens is you, you do this role and then the, the federal authorities of that country are, are waiting for the sting to go down. And then when it's, when the deal is done, they come in and arrest all of us and haul us all off, to, off uh, haul us off to jail. And, then uh, once we're out of sight of the bad guys, we get the handcuffs taken off and, and they keep them on. So that's amazing. Uh, so how, how many, how many kids have been rescued through this process in the last year? You know, I, the actual number, um, is, is still classified because there's some ongoing investigations, but, but I, what I can say is that there have been about 150 kids that, that in the rings we've broken up have been liberated from it. So again, 150 kids, it's not, it's not going to, you know, stop the two, two to three million. But I do know that in Colombia this past November, the largest child trafficking bust ever in law enforcement history happened. And I had, I had a hand in that. I, I was able to work in the undercover phase of that operation and they saved 123 kids in that operation. Wow. So it was um, just incredible. I mean, the Colombian government was amazing. They they see the problem and they they're taking action against it. Um, and and at the same time, we get a chance to be to be a part of it. And, and I have a, a wonderful wife who lets me go and do these things and um, support. I call her the Spartan Queen because yeah. she's one of those come back with your shield or on it type That's women. Right. So, she, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So how if for people who want to get more info or learn more about the organization or support the organization, how would people go about doing that? Yeah. I mean, they can go straight to its website, ourrescue.org, O-U-R rescue.org. Um, my website, you know, I talk a lot about it, post about it on social media a lot. Um, you know, I'm on Facebook and Twitter and cliffgram.com is my site, but we, we've really locked up with these guys. Um, and then other areas too, you know, we've, we've got an orphan ministry that we're involved in. Um, there's just a lot of angles of this that we're trying to show what a modern day mighty man looks like. And you know, this, the kinds of things that he gets involved in. Cause I think growing up, I always just assumed, well, widows and orphans, that's women's work. Yeah. And, and as again, reading the word, I'm like, well, that's the wrong answer. That's it's yeah. not women's work. It's what we should all be about. So. That's right. That's good. Well, Cliff, I'm super pumped about the stuff that you're working on and so excited that our paths have crossed and to be able to help spread the word in any way that I can. So I just want to thank you so much for your work and for coming on in the room. 
Thank you, Ryan. I love this show. It's been a tremendous blessing to me. And uh, I, I really do encourage you to keep it up because there's a lot of listeners out there that I know, like me, just plug the headphones in, go on our run, whatever it is, and just really get nourished from it. So thank you for your work, man. Yeah, I'm blessed really by that. It. Thanks, man. When we planted Redemption, we did so with a specific burden to reach young men. And the more I get to know Cliff, the more I appreciate him because he's trying to do the same thing through every opportunity that God affords him. So I hope you'll be praying for him and this movie as they start shooting. And that's it for this episode, but don't forget you can connect with me on Twitter and Instagram at at Ryan Hughley, that's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y, and also on my blog at RyanHughley.com. We'll be back in just two days with episode number 20 and my first conversation with a woman. Not like in my whole life, just on the podcast. It's been all dudes so far, but we're finally getting some wise and godly women on the podcast, and this first one is no exception. Last week, I sat down with author Amanda Jenkins to discuss her book, Confessions of a Raging Perfectionist. Until then, it's an honor to learn with you. I love you, and thanks for listening.